Two Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Some of you may be wondering where Kim is today. Since last Tuesday, she's been hit with the flu. And so since last Tuesday, she hasn't done much more than uh, stay on the couch. Um, and uh, it's almost painful to watch how achy and, pain and how much pain she's in as she tries to barely peel herself away from that sofa and um, finally manage to turn and get her feet on the ground and then get up to just hurry to use the restroom because that's very important, of course, and, um, and then take a few more uh, paracetamol uh, before she tries to make her way back into the living room, but the, the pull of the bed is just so strong as you see her <laughs> stumbling over there and tucking herself into bed and then being asleep for the next three hours. Um, so uh, it's been quite a, a difficult week for her. Uh, I guess you really have to have had the flu yourself to understand what it's like to truly feel the aches and the pains. And my wife reminds me that I had the flu some years ago, uh, but I just simply can't remember what that was like. Uh, my son can remember just a few weeks ago, uh, he had the flu, uh, so he's one of the more sympathetic among us. But um, those kinds of aches and pains that we feel physically, um, truly you have to have experienced them for you to, ha to have any sympathy from others. And uh, I think the same is true of our aches and pains emotionally. When you have truly been through some sad experiences, some sorrow, then you're able to sympathize with those who are going through a time of sorrow. Now, I'm assuming that most of you, you're smiling today, that uh, it's probably not a sad day for you today. But maybe some of you are going through some sadness and you are masking it pretty well. Um, well, if you are going through some sorrow today, I hope that you'll be encouraged by today's message. Uh, those of you who uh, are not sorrowful today, just know that maybe one day, especially sometimes because of God's calling on our life, that we will have to go through times of sorrow and my hope is, of course, that you'll remember the week that Jesus spent before he was uh, crucified to, to, uh, and what he experienced to earn him the name, the Man of Sorrows. When you think of Jesus and his names, we most often think of the Messianic names like King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Wonderful Counselor. But he was also given the name Man of Sorrows for good reason, one acquainted with grief. And God's call on our lives, undoubtedly, like for Jesus, will include some times of intense sorrow. And I would encourage you to remember to turn your eyes on Jesus, who can sympathize with you, not only your physical aches and pains, but especially your emotional aches and pains. See, few of us would prefer to have to go through a time of sadness, right? I'm guessing that of all the emotions that you would like to go through, sadness or sorrow is probably the last one. You look at how their emotions are classified. You have joyfulness and sorrow. You have powerful and angry. And you have peaceful and scared. A lot of the emotions are categorized into those six if you look at some of the psychological charts. And I would guess that of those six, you would prefer joyful, powerful, and peaceful, right? You probably wouldn't choose anger uh, fear, um, and sadness. Well, if you had to choose one of those three, probably the last of those three would be sadness as well. Am I right? You can smile or nod or you know, somehow affirm to me that you're following along here. I mean, after all, you pay for entertainment, don't you? 
you pay to go watch a movie that'll help you feel good. You don't usually pay for movies that will make you just feel bad as you leave. You go to an amusement park. You don't go to places that'll remind you of all of the horrible things that man has done and all of the people that have died in wars. And I mean, sometimes memorials like that are necessary for us to consider some of the horrors that have happened in history. But you usually don't go looking for things to make you sad. Usually they find your way into your life. Why? Because after all, we do live in a broken world. This world is marred by sin, which means that in this life, we can expect the results of sin, pain, bitterness, grief, sorrow, regret, and broken relations. And it may seem strange, but sometimes God calls us to a place where we will have to experience that. And that was especially true of his own beloved son, Jesus himself, the one who's known as the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So don't believe that prosperity gospel, the gospel that would try to convince you that sorrow and suffering in this life are far from being God's will for your life. Because when, not if, you go through a time of sorrows, why not turn to the man of sorrows? I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13, an event in the life of Jesus and his disciples where we see exactly why he's given this name, man of sorrows. Because Jesus himself knew the sorrow of being betrayed. He knew the sorrow of being separated from friends. And he knew the sorrow of being disowned even by his closest. In John chapter 13, if we were to start in verse one, you'd see that this was the, the occasion where Jesus and his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, first washed his disciples' feet. But we're going to go to verse 18, where Jesus has finished washing his disciples' feet. He has told them that you are all clean, but, not, but one of you is not clean. You are clean, though not every one of you, he says in verse 10. And then in verse 18, as Jesus speaks to his disciples, let's read together, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So let's look at these details, first of all, of this evening that Jesus spent with his disciples. And you need to imagine Jesus and his disciples reclining around the table. 
Those images you know of the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, forget those, okay? I know that now I've mentioned it, that's the image that you have in your mind. That is not what it looked like that evening. We have to imagine that in the ancient Near East, that they were gathered around a table, perhaps a series of tables, that were low, and that they would recline along that table, usually on their left side so that they could eat with their right hands, with their head close to the table and their feet um, away from the table. And as we read this story, we see that John must have been reclining right next to Jesus because he had his back towards him and leaning back would have meant he was resting his head by Jesus' chest. Now commentators agree that this disciple whom Jesus loved is John's way of designating himself in his gospel. Peter must not have been immediately next to Jesus since he has to ask John to ask Jesus uh, the question. Judas Iscariot must have been somewhere close since Jesus was able to directly give him the piece of bread. And this meal they were sharing was the Passover meal, always celebrated in the evening by the Jews in Jesus' day and even today, the night that they commemorate that they left their slavery in Egypt when the Lord dealt that final blow on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And John also confirms, he gives us a time frame that it was in the evening. And then Jesus predicts his betrayal. He predicts that the prophecy of Psalm 41 verse 9 will be fulfilled that night. He had said, I do not speak to all of you. He's referring to what he had said earlier with the foot washing that you are clean, but not all of you. And as John provides in his narration, Jesus knew that he would be betrayed by one of them that were around the table. He said that one of them was going to lift up his heel against him in fulfillment of that psalm. Now, those of us who aren't familiar with the culture wouldn't know what lifting up his heel would mean. But Psalm 41 is a psalm of David where he's praying for the Lord's mercy upon him, and he's anguishing over the fact that his enemies are succeeding in their attacks against him. And he despairs in verse 9 over the fact that even my close friend in whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Sharing bread was a sign of intimacy, that you fellowship together, that you were close. But lifting up your heel was a sign of contempt. It was rude. And even in the Near East today, that to show the, the, the sole of your feet is, is rude. It's uh, sometimes considered a metaphor of a horse raising his hoof right before he's about to kick. And if any of you have ever been betrayed by a friend, sometimes it does feel like someone has just punched you in the gut. Today, we wouldn't say lifted up his heel because we have hand gestures and specific fingers of our hands that we use to show contempt rudely. I won't demonstrate. I assume that you all uh, know what kind of hand gestures I mean. But if David were to write Psalm 41 today, he might have written, my own BFF, who said that he had my back, has now thrown me under the bus. See, those are expressions we might use today that David, of course, knew nothing about. But Jesus makes this prediction, verifying his identity as God the Son. Remember that his miracles and his prophecies together demonstrate that he is the one who he said he was, sent by the Father. So he had miracles and he had predictions about what was to happen to demonstrate that he truly is the Messiah, the one who is he, as he says. And he was fully prepared. These events were going to happen as planned by the Heavenly Father who had sent him. And even though Jesus was prepared for them, we see from John, or this account from John, that Jesus was nevertheless troubled in spirit. 
he knew that one of his closest would betray him. He knew that the betrayal would mean that he would have to endure trials and scourging, pain, and even the cross. This word troubled in the physical sense means stirred. In the metaphysical sense, it means perplexed or fearful. And this inner emotion of Jesus was evident on his own face as John says that he was troubled. The only other time we see John, in John's gospel Jesus being troubled, well, we saw last week at the uh, raising of Lazarus that Jesus was in anguish over the sorrow that they had experienced. But also as he told his disciples we're going to Jerusalem, John could see that Jesus was troubled in his soul as he faces the hour where he has to fulfill the Father's will. And the disciples themselves were perplexed because they were wondering, is it truly going to be one of us that will betray him? The other gospel writers reveal that the disciples ask each other, is it me? Or I'm asked of Jesus, is it me? Or, or surely not I, Lord? And as they had to ask Jesus the question, it would indicate that none of them, except for Judas, of course, were expecting that it would be a deliberate act, a calculated act by one from who was in the inner circle of Jesus himself. And in Matthew and Mark's gospels, Jesus responds to their question by confirming it would be one of them. In fact, one who would dip their hand in the bowl with him. And they were probably wondering to themselves, but haven't we all been dipping our hand into the bowl? Well, you see, that is exactly the point. It would be from one of those who were the intimate closest of friends, one who had been dipping his hand in the same bowl with Jesus. And Peter, from wherever he was reclining, asked John to ask Jesus, who is it? And John then leans back to ask Jesus. Well, Jesus then identifies the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, by sharing with him his piece of bread. And in Matthew's gospel, if you read that, you see Judas trying to hide his guilt, saying out loud, surely it's not I, Rabbi. And Jesus answering him, yes, it is you. And then, as we read today, Jesus instructs Judas to leave. And as he did, the other disciples were still perplexed, still wondering, what did he just send him out to do? It's clear to John that it was Satan, the enemy of God, that was at Judas's heart and his inspiration to betray the Son of God. Judas was told to do his evil deed quickly, and John reveals that none of them understood what Jesus was talking about. So as far as they knew, they had no idea what was going to happen next. None of them understood what Jesus was talking about. And they were certainly perplexed that it would be one of them, and Jesus says to go out and do that quickly. Well, I ask you today, have you ever been betrayed by someone close? I don't know, perhaps in the office, someone that you've confided in that perhaps you're going to be leaving the company soon. And then your boss somehow finds out. And this was the only friend that you had told the incident to, and now your boss knows. Or perhaps you have a close friend and you shared something with them and and then suddenly in another context, you see that you hear this friend blurting out the very private thing that you just shared. And then you feel the shame. And then of course the regret that you thought you could trust this friend or maybe a counselor, even your pastor or your spouse, someone that close to you whom you've confided in shares the things that you thought would remain private. Well, whatever the sorrow you've had of those kinds of betrayals, does it even come close to being betrayed like Jesus was? 
you and I may have had to miss a promotion for it, or we might be humiliated or feel shame, or maybe there are some financial consequences to the betrayal. But what did Jesus have to endure after he was betrayed? Well, some of you know what happens the rest of the week. Because he was betrayed, Jesus had to go through all that he went before even reaching the cross. The unfair trials, the injustice, the torture that he had to endure because he was betrayed to the religious leaders. Well, if you've never experienced that kind of betrayal, maybe it's because we've protected ourselves. We simply don't share with others or hold people in that close inner circle of friends. Well, we see here that Jesus certainly was troubled as he knew that one from among his closest of friends would betray him. And yet the Bible tells us as well that Jesus endured that cross for the joy that was set before him. And because of that joy, he was able to scorn its shame. And friends, you and I too have that promise from God that those of us who love God and are called according to his purpose, whatever sorrow we have to experience because of betrayal, God can work it out for good. We might not be able to see how he can work it out for good, but that's not necessarily for us to know in this moment. We know that Jesus, though, understands our sorrow and has been through it himself. What else has he been through? Well, notice then in verse 31. When he was gone, that is when Judas left, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus, once again, predicts what's going to happen next, that soon he will be glorified and that in him, God will be glorified. Now that the betrayal was set in action, it wouldn't be long before the rest of the events would take place that night and would culminate in him ultimately on the cross. But at least the work of redemption would be completed and he would rise from the dead victorious and that resurrection would be the father's vindication of his son, that the father himself would also be glorified and Jesus could then, upon his resurrection, ascend into his rightful place in glory. But in the meantime, he was going to be separated from those he loved dearly. He predicted that it would mean his disciples would be left without him. He knew that his disciples had been following him all along, but now would come a time that they could not follow him any longer. He said, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. So from the perspective of the disciples, consider what this meant, because this statement was rightfully difficult for them to understand. They'd been following Jesus for three years. They had expected this was the Messiah. Soon he will reign and we will reign with him. They had high hopes of Jesus. And if Jesus was going to be glorified in God, then how could his betrayal and his conviction and his crucifixion and finally his death and his burial be in any way glorious for him? They were committed to following Christ. Now they're being told that this was as far as they could follow. Consider as well from Jesus' perspective. He knew that it would be sad to leave them alone. He called them here, my children. Clearly, he had affection, care, and tenderness for them. And he knew they'd be looking for him, but they couldn't come with him. 
Have you ever felt that you had to leave some of your closest friends? Some of you here are not even Danish, so probably you had to leave friends just to come to Denmark to be here. So you know what that's like to be separated. We live in an international community. It's always quite common for us to have to say goodbye to friends. It's always nice to say hello to friends, especially when they come back, like Gordon coming back from Scotland. Gordon was, by the way, one of our uh, council chairmen at some point in time. Uh, but that's the nature of our church. We come and we go. And we often have to say goodbye. And sometimes we allow people close to our hearts so that we really become attached to them. And then we have to say goodbye. Sometimes we won't really understand what it's like but let's not underestimate that Jesus had a strong affection for his disciples. He showed the full extent of his love as he washed their feet. He would demonstrate that love for them by laying down his life for them. He promised them an eternal home that he was preparing in order to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus desires the presence and the company of his disciples and he calls them my children. Again, it's one of those aches and pains you have to experience for yourself when you have to say goodbye to your children and leave them in Chicago like I had to do. I've told some of you the story. I'm not gonna tell it again because I probably wouldn't make it through. Um, and then you'd think it would get easier to say goodbye to your children when you leave them in college. When I left my son in Chicago, I remember clearly I was bawling all the way to the airport. Um, but then the following year, I took my next son to South Carolina. And after I said goodbye, I headed for the airport, which is about a two hour drive away. And I did pretty well, because that whole two hour drive, I was fine, until I stopped to eat a meal. And looking at the menu, I thought, I wonder what Thomas would order. And then the tears started to flow. Woo, I was crying again. And I called my wife. I'm like, why does this have to be so hard? And you know, and there I was. Uh, feeling that separation, that emptiness, I felt like, no, you know, I'm going to just drive right back, tell him it was all a mistake. He's coming back into the car with me. We're packing his things and we're going back home again. Um, that's truly how I felt we were, I was going to do that. And uh, when I came home, I told my next son, you're never leaving for college. Um, <laughs> but this August, sure enough, he has plans to go to college, which of course is important as well. But unless you've been through it, and some of you have been through it, you, you don't know what that ache and that pain of being separated from close friends, especially your own children, is like. So those of you who have been through it, we can commiserate together in August sometime. But thankfully, we have since been together again and then since had to leave each other again. But uh, Jesus knows that sorrow, that pain of separation. Those he loved dearly and deeply, he knew that you will have to follow later. And this earthly separation is temporary when we have brothers and sisters in Christ. I haven't had to go through the separation of a close loved one dying. I still have my in-laws, my parents-in-law, my own parents are still living. Uh, none of my brothers, and si my, my, I only have one brother, he's still living, and uh, his wife and children and my own children. I, those in our closest network I haven't had to experience yet. Maybe some of you have, and you know what that separation is like. But again, we have this hope that those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ, that the separation is only temporary. And what is this short separation when you compare to eternity spending together? And Jesus himself assuring his disciples that you can't come with me now, but you will be with me later. So we know that not even death can separate us from each other permanently. Charles Spurgeon 
in a recent devotion that we read in our family, was analyzing this passage where, the, uh, where Jesus prays to the Father, saying, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory. You see, that's Christ's prayer for his disciples, praying to the Father that his disciples would be with him in glory. Now, you and I here on earth, who are close with another one of Jesus' disciples, who may be just about to pass from this life into death, our prayer might be, Lord, keep him here or keep him, her alive. But do you realize that our prayer is in direct contradiction to Jesus' prayer for that disciple, where Jesus' prayer to the Father is, Father, I want them to be with me in glory. So causing us to really consider as we pray for those loved ones of ours to remain here on earth, we may be praying in direct contradiction to that of our Lord. So Charles Spurgeon says, though we may wish for our loved ones to remain with us, don't pray the opposite of what Jesus asks the Father. He says, pray instead, Lord, thou shalt have them. By faith, we let them go. And at least we also know that this sorrow we experience is only temporary, and it's a sorrow that Jesus knows all too well. Well then, in verse 36, as we continue our reading here, Simon Peter asks the Lord, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Jesus predicts here that Peter will deny him three times that very night. Peter thought he had the courage, the strength, that he would go where Jesus would go, even if it meant death. But he couldn't even last till the rooster crowed in the morning. And it wasn't just once he denied his Savior, it was three times he denied his Savior. And what Jesus then had to endure was again a fulfillment of messianic prophecies. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus knew that. You will all fall away, he told them, Jesus would then spend the late hours of that night agonizing alone in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples couldn't remain awake. He asked them to watch and pray, but they couldn't stay awake. And meanwhile, alone, Jesus anguished as drops of blood mixed with his sweat, and he prayed for the Father to let this cup pass from him because he knew that the pain that he would have to endure, the suffering, was the cup of wrath that this Holy Father would pour out on him for all flesh. He knew that he would have to be wounded and bear the stripes that were foretold by Isaiah. So when Judas then handed him over to the soldiers, the disciples scattered. Jesus then had to endure these false trials, the scourging, the bearing the cross without anyone by his side. No one helped him until someone was assigned to help him bear that cross of his. So do you think Jesus knows the sorrow of being all alone, having your closest friends deserting you, even disowning you. For some, in some cultures, choosing to follow Christ means that your family disowns you. Some of you perhaps have experienced that. Sometimes we're written out of our own will, or out of the wills of our own parents. And every day children find out that they're unwanted or they're abandoned by their parents. And Peter, you could argue that Peter was the closest of all of the 12 disciples to Jesus. 
if you think of the stories about or the, the, the Gospels, you have, of course, the 12 who were chosen, but who were the three that were the closest to Jesus? Peter, James, and John, right? They were the ones who were with him when he raised Jairus' child. They were with him for the transfiguration, and they were the ones that Jesus called to, to draw near in the Garden of Gethsemane. And out of those three, Peter, James, and John, one could also argue that Peter was the closest of those three. Peter was the one that Jesus that asked Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. He was the first of the disciples to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when Satan asked for permission to sift one of them like wheat, it was Peter. And even though all the disciples would abandon Jesus after he was was betrayed, Peter was the one that Jesus specifically reinstated. So Jesus knows what it's like to have your closest of friends deny that they even knew you. And so when Jesus heard the rooster crow early the next morning, he was able to turn and look straight at Peter, who had just denied him a third time, and Peter went and wept bitterly. No doubt Jesus himself also was sorrowful about that denial. Well, then, as we know, Jesus goes on to bear the full weight of mankind's sin. And not only was it it, uh, terrible to have to go through what he went, but he also felt the separation of the Father as the skies went dark for three hours. He was extremely tired from, being, from having agonized all night in the garden and being on trial during the wee hours of the morning. He was wrecked with pain from the physical abuse and the torture by the Roman soldiers. He was exhausted from hanging on that cross by his wrists and his feet. He was demoralized by the mocking and jeering of crowds who stood and stared. He was weakened by hunger and by thirst. And then darkness covered the whole earth or the land for three hours And now he sensed that the Holy Father himself had to distance himself from the unholy sin that he bore. And that's why he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there Jesus hung, completely alone. And that feeling of loneliness, if you've ever been there, probably is one of the most difficult of sorrows you've ever had to go through. I mean, just think if you just had one other person with you, that loneliness could be mitigated. And there will be times when even though we're not alone, we might feel alone. Well, Jesus understands that. And those of us who have felt completely alone, we know that ache, that emotional pain that can be sometimes so unbearable. And unfortunately, so many people who have that loneliness will do things to fill it that oftentimes are destructive. Or when no one is responding to their loneliness, they'll take their own lives. Well, Jesus knows, even in the deepest of your sorrows, what it feels like to be left completely alone. Even as he hung there on the cross and someone wanted to offer him something to to dull the pain, you know what they said to them? Leave him alone. And sometimes God's call upon your life may include a time when you will feel all alone. Well, friends, those are the times that God wants you to feel his presence and his nearness. He wants you to know that he can sympathize with that pain. And sometimes he'll have to take you to a place where you truly are and utterly are completely dependent on him and him alone. And so, yes, sometimes those that call of God on on our lives will lead to deep sorrow. But we can be assured, as we've seen what Jesus has been through, that he knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be separated from closest friends, and he knows what it's like 
to be left all alone and deserted. And as you and I go through that sorrows, let's remember that if we love God and we're fulfilling his purpose for our lives, then he will turn that occasion into something good. He will work all things in our lives for good that will ultimately bring him glory in due time. And that pain of that sef the separation from loved ones is only temporary. The world may hate us and disown us, but Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, the gospel is not that we will never experience sorrow in this life. The gospel is that there will be no sorrows in heaven because the man of sorrows has already dealt sin and death its final blow. So as we go through this Easter week, let's remember these occasions specifically why Jesus has the name a man of sorrows, that he is a high priest for us who can sympathize with our weaknesses and with our sorrows. As we close, I want to invite the worship team to come on up, and I'd like to read to you from Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bibles, read along with me. This man of sorrows who knows what it is that we must go through at times. Isaiah 53, as the band prepares, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.